Hello, everyone. This is Travis G. Vernon, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, we have some stories about when I first started out as a fly fishing guide. I began guiding in 1997. Guiding became much more than just a job. It has always been a passion of mine. I really enjoy taking people out, showing them nature, teaching them about the river, how to read the water, how to find the fish, and being able to catch trout with fly rods. Now, I'm not a fly rod purist. I really enjoy fishing with all types of equipment. But there's something about a high mountain trout stream and fish that'll come up and take a dry fly off the surface of the water. It's a pretty special experience. There are times of the year where you're able to have opportunities to catch lots of fish on dry flies. But each fish is unique. Each cast can be in a completely new location. It may take you hours to fish certain parts of the stream looking for that one fish, that one difficult cast, that one difficult lie where you can make a good cast and catch a difficult fish. It's a pretty exceptional thing. Now, being a guide, the industry has changed a lot since I first started guiding in 1997. In the original big boom of fly fishing following the movie A River Runs Through It, which I still find is a great movie. I enjoy the book as well. But following that boom, so many people wanted to get into fly fishing. They wanted to see what it was all about, experience time on the water. And it was super, super fun. It was a magical time. As a fishing guide, I was able to spend almost every day off and the entire summer when I wasn't in class on the water, teaching people to do what I love. Now, during that time, there were a lot of really fun experiences. And I'll do my best not to name names, but I've always kept track of some stories and some things that happened that were either funny or intriguing. So this will just be a small taste of some of the fishing stories that I have accumulated over the years from guiding. On one occasion, I had a father-daughter, and we went to one of my favorite spots to access this high mountain stream. In order to get there, we had to cross a small creek that was flowing into the main channel of the river. To get across this small creek, to get to the river, we had to cross on this giant beaver dam. Now, the dam was about 8 feet tall, maybe even taller than that, and about 20 feet in length. Now, the dam was constructed so well that you could walk across it just like a bridge. As we get out onto the bridge, I start going through some of my morning spiel, talking about the water, how cold it is, and I point out this beaver dam as we step out onto it. And I explain to the father, see how far up off the ground we are. That's how deep the water is on the other side. His daughter starts to catch up to us, and he says that to his daughter. Look how far up off the ground we are. That's how deep the water is on this other side. And she said, is that true? Which I then reply, yes, it's true. The beaver has created this dam, backed up all the water on the other side of it to make a place for it to live and keep its food and so that there's a 
a water and food supply during the winter, even when everything's frozen. At this point, this girl says, there's no way that it's that deep. I can see the bottom and steps off into the beaver pond. All I hear is bloop and she's gone. There's nothing but a hat on the surface of the water. I sprint over to where she is, which is only three or four feet away. Reach in, grab her waders, pull her out. As soon as she comes up out of the water, it's the <gasps> from the cold, cold, cold water that was in that beaver pond. And her dad shakes his head, says, why did you do that? I don't know what to say at this point. I'm pretty sure the day is over before it's even begun. When the father tells the daughter, well, go back to the vehicle, strip out of your clothes, wring them out, lay them out to dry, hang out inside. Travis, give her the keys so that she can start it if she needs to, but we're still going to go fish. So off we went to the river and we had a great day. On another occasion, I had a client who was a pretty good stick, meaning that he was a, a good caster. After lunch, we went down into this narrow area of a canyon. And from previous experience, I knew that there was a really, really small trickle of a stream that came into that river. And one day I'd followed that stream up just to see what there was. As I got closer to the top of the stream, I discovered a tiny ancient beaver dam. There wasn't a, a beaver currently living there. But the pond that he had created upstream of this dam had a lot of really nice fishing. Now, when I say nice fish, keep in mind this is a high mountain trout stream. The average trout is going to be between 8 and 12 inches in length. Anything 14 to 18 inches is an absolute giant. This entire beaver pond was filled with brook trout that were in the 16 to 18 inch range. I would say maybe 15, 16 fish. So these fish were sitting on the bottom and you were able to make a single cast. On the bottom of this beaver pond, you could see where the debris was slowly bubbling. And it was pretty obvious to tell that there was a spring in the bottom. So that spring would keep the water a little bit warmer in the wintertime and a little bit cooler in the summertime, giving the trout in there a better environment to grow. From previous experience, I knew you would get one cast. Once your fly hit the water in that beaver pond, one of those brook trout, well, all of the brook trout would come after the fly. Whichever one got there first, you could either hook it or miss it, but that was your chance. If you hooked the fish, the ensuing fight was going to spook everything else. If you missed the fish, it was such a small beaver pond that ripping the fly off the water would spook the fish. So I'm fishing on the river with this client. And I ask him, hey, you've been having a pretty good day. Would you be interested in going up and trying this little spot that's kind of a secret that has some really big brook trout in it? He gets super excited. He's always wanted to catch a really nice brook trout. So we head up that direction. Now, it's not an easy approach because these high mountain streams, you really do need to sneak in on some of these fish. So as we get closer and closer to this beaver pond, I get lower and lower to the point that I'm almost crawling on the ground to get up to the edge where we can cast 
this one cast for the one fish, we get to the edge and I start to explain what's going to happen. That you're only going to get the single cast to stay back behind the beaver dam. That you may have a chance to catch a fish if you don't mess it up. If we do catch it, it'll be a beautiful trout. Well, all trout are beautiful, but this would be a large, beautiful trout. This is when everything changed. Out of the blue, my client stands up, looks me in the face, and says, Travis, do you think I'm stupid? I don't even understand what's happening. We just spent all this time belly crawling up on a beaver pond to catch a nice brook trout. And this guy just stands up and ruins everything. So I don't really hear the question. So I have to throw back with a, uh, what? He says, Travis, do you think I'm stupid? All right, well, no, sir, I don't think you're stupid. Well, maybe a little bit now. At this point, he says, take me back to the river. So we hike back to the river. The entire time I'm shaking my head, I have no idea what's just occurred. So we get back to the river. I re-rig for a dry fly dropper combination. We start fishing again. A few minutes passes, it's dead quiet. I'm not talking, he's not talking. Another few minutes passes, and he looks over at me. You must really think I'm stupid. I'm like, sir, I don't know what just happened. I don't have the foggiest idea of what occurred right there. With a super stern look, he says, you honestly believe that we were going to catch fish in that beaver pond? I said, yes, sir. I know for a fact there are fish in that beaver pond. There are large fish in that beaver pond, and we ruined that opportunity. His reply is one of my favorites of all time. So you're telling me that the beaver don't eat all the fish? <laughs> I didn't even know what to say at this point. So I said, no, sir, the beaver don't eat all the fish. Beavers eat the bark of trees. If at this point of the story, you're confused, and you don't understand why the beavers didn't eat all the fish, it's because beavers don't eat fish. Otters do, but we weren't in an otter pond because otters don't build dams. You'll hear almost all outdoor guides talk about some of the funny questions that you get with regards to wildlife. You'll hear quite often people will ask, how long does it take a deer to turn into an elk? It gets to be almost commonplace, so commonplace that one of my guide buddies responded one day, to that exact question. Hey, how long does it take for a deer to turn into an elk? He replied without hesitation, the exact same amount of time for an elk to turn into a moose. I have been asked multiple times in the backcountry, who plants all these wildflowers? I've also been asked, how much did it cost to do all this river rock landscaping? Do you have any idea? How much river rock costs where I live? You guys must have paid a fortune to line this entire river with river rock. On most occasions, the guides won't even say anything if it's a really stupid question or will play it off just so that you don't embarrass yourself in front of friends and family or things like that. You know, we're not out there to, to show people up. We're just out there to have a good time and catch some fish. One day as we're driving, so it's a couple of guides and quite a few clients, we're driving into this spot that had a picnic table and it's a gravel road going up. 
And just before we get there, a badger runs across the road and we hit it with our rig. Now, it wasn't a killing blow, and I don't like to see an animal suffer. So it wasn't doing too good, and it kind of drug itself off the road. Obvious that it had a broken spine. So I tell the guide who's driving just to drop me off. I'll take care of the badger, and I'll walk up while they get the clients into their waders and get rods all set up for the fishing day. So I dispatch the badger, walk back up to where everybody else is fishing. And as I walk in, a woman in the group comes up and gives me a hug. She's like, I was so upset when we hit that, but thanks so much for taking care of it. That really means the world to me. I just let it go. One of the other guides chose that opportunity to say, I don't know what you're talking about, lady. Travis isn't a neurosurgeon. He just killed that badger. To which I could see the appall cross her face when she realized what had really just occurred. Makes for a tough day of fishing when it starts out like that. There's quite a few times where we'll get a big group for either a bachelor party or bachelorette party or a girls night out type of a party and we'll take them all fishing. And that can be a lot of fun. The questions are usually pretty bizarre, but it's expected because this group you know probably didn't all want to go fish. So there's going to be some people that have never even set foot outside of a city, which is totally fine. Like I said, I love teaching people if people are willing to learn. We had this huge group of women on a ladies trip. And as guides, we would all split up and go hit our different beats on the river. And then we would meet back for lunch or we'd meet back to drive back to the shop. And on this day, as we're getting back to the picnic table, this woman comes walking down the stream, holding the shoulder blade or the scapula of a dead cow that had died upriver and had just rotted away. All that's left now is just some desiccated skin and bone. So she's carrying the shoulder blade and all the guides are kind of looking at each other like, what in the world? So the guide that was with them said, just don't worry about it. Just let it be. So we started to eat lunch, at which time she puts this shoulder blade on the picnic table and all the other women start to ask questions about it. At this point, she says, this is one of those things I've always wanted to find. And I finally found one. I'm so excited. I'm going to take this home and it's going to have a place on my wall. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world is she thinking? I don't understand what's going on. When one of the women says, well, what is it? And she replies, it's a moose antler. Then it became, you have to tell her. No, you have to tell her. I don't want to be the one to tell her. So we waited till the, the group had started to disperse, getting ready to go back out onto the river. And I just kind of snuck up to her. And, explained, hey, just so you know, that's not a moose antler. That's the shoulder blade of a dead cow. While she was disappointed that it wasn't a moose antler, I think in the long run she was probably pleased that she didn't have a scapula of a dead cow hanging on her wall. That would have been an awkward situation down the road. Another fun fly fishing story I have involved 
fishing on a river in late summer, early fall, and a mountain bluebird. And if you're not familiar with mountain bluebirds, look them up. They are a really, really cool bird. This mountain bluebird, which I believe was a newly fledged juvenile, was trying to land on my client's fly rod. Now he came in and would try and land and the client would wave his fly rod around like, don't land on my fly rod. And I told the gentleman, I'm like, just hold your rod still. See if he'll land on it. This is pretty cool. You're going to have a mountain bluebird just you know, a few feet away from your face. Let's just let it land and see what happens. So he starts to hold the fly rod still and the bluebird comes up and just before it sits on the fly rod, there's this loud pow and it sounds like a gunshot. And then there's feathers everywhere in the air around us, blowing around. And I look, and there's a sparrow hawk flying away with this baby bluebird. Absolutely incredible. Never had a predator smash a bird in flight six feet in front of my face before. Absolutely an amazing experience. To which the client replies, does that happen very often? Now, this is really just scratching the surface of all the guide stories I have, but these are some of my absolute favorites. Hopefully, I'll be able to convince a few of my guide friends to sit in here with me one day, and we'll start to tell stories, and you can hear some even more bizarre things that happen on the river. But I'll leave you with one more fun one. To set this up, it would be great if you could Google images and pull up sagebrush oceans of Wyoming. That'll just give you an idea of what some of the terrain looks like where I was driving this day. As far as you could see, little dips and valleys of gray-blue sagebrush in every direction with this strip of asphalt running through the middle of it as we were driving to our fishing spot. Out of the blue, the client states, I can't believe how beautiful this is going to be one day. To which every person in the car looked at me. And I looked at the other guide. There's no response to that. So we just continued to drive. A few minutes pass and the client pipes up from the back again. You guys, seriously, I just can't believe how beautiful this is going to be one day. At this point, I'm intrigued. Sir, what are you talking about? How beautiful it's going to be one day. And he gestures with his hands over the expanse of the sagebrush and says, When all these little trees grow up. <laughs> uh, sir, these are sagebrush. It's been like this for a millennia. This is as good as it gets. Well, I hope you enjoyed those stories today. As always, it's great having you listen along to my stories. There's many, many more to come.